Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us here, BeNaiShalom.tv, and thank you for inviting us into your home this week. Um, on behalf of my family and on behalf of this ministry, we thank you for supporting and being a part of this ministry. As many of you know, um, that my mother passed away on December 21st, and uh, on behalf of my family, my sister and my father, we want to thank you and uh, share our appreciation for all the love and support that we've received uh, over the past couple of weeks. Um, we thank you for also value, valuing our privacy in this time. Um, we continue to press on with all the matters of the ministry as well. Um, however, uh, we're still going through a couple of things. We had the memorial, public memorial service uh, for my mom yesterday. And that is available uh, if you'd like. You can watch that either on our Facebook page or on our main Lion and Lamb website. And uh, we had a wonderful time uh, honoring the life of my mom. And so we thank you for all of those things. Um, Eddie Chumney will once again be teaching our Brit Hadashah portion for this week. So we're looking forward to that. Um, also, wonderful news. Uh, we opened up our Camp Yeshua registration on January 1st. We had a huge outpouring of kids and registrations signing up uh, that we look forward to every single year. We still have a couple of spots open. We opened up more spots this year, um, a couple, uh, 40 more uh, to get in all the kids that want to get in. So if you have not registered yet, any of the youth out there, we encourage you to come and join us for Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp. It's a wonderful, life-changing experience uh, that we enjoy doing every single year. Um, also, we've already had some kids request and families request for financial assistance so that their kids can come and be a part of Camp Yeshua. We don't ever want anybody who wants to come uh, not be able to come. And so we would encourage you, if you're so led of the Lord, uh, to share a donation and you can designate your donation here toward Camp Yeshua that can help a couple of uh, kids and families to attend Camp Yeshua. Um, so we encourage you, if uh, the Lord stirs in your heart to do so, we greatly appreciate that. And there's a number of brethren that would greatly appreciate that as well. So, once again, I thank you for joining us here on this Erev Shabbat. And uh, now let us enter into the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher kiddushanu bemetzvotav vetzivanu lehad lekner shel shabbat. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen.
Wonderful, Brian. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Now we do the blessings over the sons. Yeah, that's you.
much. Shalom. It's time for the Baruch Hu. Baruch Hu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach le'olam vahen. Blessed be the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Mi chamocha. Mi kamocha ba'elim Adonai. Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh. Nohora tehilot. Ohose fele. Ohose fele. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you? Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? And now, for the blessing of our Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher natan lanu et haderech Yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in the Messiah Yeshua. V'shamru. V'shamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-shabbat ledorotam b'rit olam. B'ni u'vein b'nei Yisrael o'thi le'olam. Ki sheshet yamim asa Adonai et ha-shamayim ve'et aretz. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and rested. And now if you can all please face east with me for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kevod, Malchuto, Leolam Vayet. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. And now for the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol merdecha. Ve'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher nochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vishinantan Levanecha, Vidibarta Bam Beshiv Techa Bevetecha, Uvlechtecha Baderech, Ushach Becha of Kumecha, Uksharkam Leot Aliadecha, Vehayu Letotafot Bainanecha. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
You shall bind them for a sign upon your arm, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at His feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Way the mountains move into 
If you would please turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus, the second book of Moses. And there our portion will begin for this week as we start the book of Shemot, the book of names. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Barchabanu Michol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. As I already said, our Torah portion this week is entitled Shemot. It is entitled Names. It comes from the first phrase of the book of Exodus where it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. It's interesting here as we begin a new book here in our Torah cycle. The book of Exodus, that's which we call in the English, is obviously the story. Our entire narrative now shifts toward the children of Israel and toward a man named Moses who will go down to Egypt, will bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and the rest of our Torah cycle will go, will follow their journeys in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The book of Genesis almost is like kind of a, a prologue that just uh, tells us how the children of Israel got down to Egypt in the first place. We call it the book of Exodus because that's obviously the story that uh, it predo- is predominantly spoken of in this book. However, It's more about the journeys that the children of Israel carried on after they leave Egypt. They're already on their way out of Egypt by chapter 12 in the book of Exodus. It's kind of almost a short-sighted idea to look at the book of Exodus and why it's called Exodus when they get out of Egypt early on in the book. And then it's more about the journey to the mountain. And it's about the covenant that they make with God there. And it's about all of the things that God commands the children of Israel to do to... um, to share his heart with them. It's interesting that our Torah portion here is called the book of names. In this portion specifically, it, it's, we talk about names. What we hear, will tell here at the start of the chapter is that there will be a new pharaoh that rises up in Egypt. There will be a new pharaoh that does not remember Joseph, or the man who was once called the savior of the world, the one, man who, the Hebrew man who came down and, uh, 
interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh and said there was going to be a great years of famine and then there was going to be um, what you had to have was we had to save up the food so that you could save the world through those years of famine. This was a man that was well known in Egypt. This man had probably had a, a monarch um, monasteries and things set up and, and temples praising this man for what he did. And so, how could anybody ever rise up later and forget what Joseph did? Well, that's exactly what happened. And as we can determine through the chronology study, is that it's about 130 years after Jacob and his family came to Egypt. 130 years. If you think about it, it's possible, if you just look at our country here, uh, about 130 years ago, um, you can look back, look at the Civil War, for instance, and Abraham Lincoln. Does everybody here today always remember what the, the Civil War, what we went through here in the Union, and what... Um, Abraham Lincoln did, or do we still have some of the same problems? Do we almost forget what we did if, if for instance, uh, politically in our country where we talk about racism and we talk about what we have here today, it's nothing like it was back then. It's almost like we forget about the Emancipation Proclamation. We, talk, we forget about the work of Abraham Lincoln. So it's possible that in 130 years' time, things are forgotten. Things are not, re- you, we don't remember what somebody did historically. So there's actually kind of a possibility here that this is the way that that worked. So we have a pharaoh, a new pharaoh rise up that forgets the name of Joseph. It's interesting that our portion is called names. In this, we'll also learn about a man, a man named Moses. And we'll learn about his name, how he was drawn from the waters. And that he is a man that will be, that will be risen up and will lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then after, when, when Moses has an encounter with God on this mountain, on Mount Sinai, through a burning bush, we will learn the very name of God. Very interesting here that this is the subject of our Torah portion. Shakespeare once said, what's in a name? In his quote, he said, what's in a name, that which we call a rose, is by any other name, smells just as sweet. I actually think Shakespeare was on to something. Because it's not as much about the name of something, as much as it is about the character of that person. Because even somebody who has a good name, even somebody that comes from a good family, can then can, can act in a way that is not honoring to that family, to that name. Somebody in the, you can even change your name, and people's names are changed all the time. And you change your name to try and live to, to a, in a different way, or try to have a new lease on life because a name has changed. But that still, at the heart, doesn't change the character of an individual. That's what's very interesting here, that we can look at names, we can look at the meaning of names, but the thing that we really should focus on and learn is what is the character of the individual? What's behind that name? Because the name is just kind of what, what's on the surface. What, what Maybe the first thing that you, you know about somebody is their name. But then, once you get to know somebody, then you know deeper down who they are, what their character is. And then the name is almost secondary. In fact, if you fall in love with somebody, in a, in a couple that falls in love, it's actually very rare after when it's all said and done that they even call each other by their name anymore. There's always other terms of endearment that take the place of what somebody's true name is. And so what that does is that speaks to the relationship that we should try to build with the character 
of a person and not focus on their name. Here in our portion here, we will learn about God. God will introduce himself to Moses. And what his goal is, is to use Moses and to use the children of Israel to make himself known to the world. And this is the first time that we hear the name of God. It's like the very first introduction that we are to God. We hear the stories in the past in Genesis about Abraham and other men that walked with God and had relationships with God. And we, we see some of those examples here and we see some of the patterns and parallels and future prophecies that we see how God is going to fulfill. But it's here that we truly begin the what it is to have a covenant relationship with our Heavenly Father, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we are introduced and we begin that relationship by first learning the name of God. So, with that kind of as an introduction here, let us go through some of the high points of our Torah portion here. And then let's see how we can kind of wrap this up. And let's see if we can start to the process of learning the character of God through all of the stories of old and through how he introduces himself to Moses and how he will introduce himself to Egypt and Pharaoh. As I said before, there's a new pharaoh that rises up in Egypt. And what he does, and, and this, some of the backstory, and we learned some of this from other extra-biblical texts, we believe that there was a, some sort of prophecy that there was going to be a... the. For, let me say this first. The Hebrew people, the sons of Israel, become a great company. They, became, they multiplied greatly through... Uh, in 130 years, they, they multiplied into a very large amount of people. They were also very strong. They were also very... It says here in the scripture that the Egyptians feared for them because they had become a mighty people. We also believe that they became neighbors with the Egyptians over time. That they... If their Egypt went to war, the sons of Israel went to war with them. They fought valiantly and they helped to preserve basically the world through the years of famine and after that, that then it came out of Egypt that there was that's kind of how civilization sort of restarted after this great worldwide famine. And so we believe that the children of Israel, they grew into this great company and then the Egyptians the native born Egyptians feared them. So then they became, we, we got to figure out what we're going to do with these people. Now to our knowledge, they were good neighbors. There wasn't seemed to, seemingly to be any issues. However, there still was a great deal of fear from the Egyptians. First lesson that we can learn from that is one should never make a decision based on fear. We should not decide how we should deal with one person or the other because we fear something. We instead should look at, toward, again, going to the character of what somebody is, learning the truth with evidence and making a good decision, not just based on some initial emotion or feeling that we have. That's one of the first things that we can learn. The king of Egypt, um, through this process, they realize they have to deal shrewdly with the children of Israel. So they come up with this idea, they deal with, they come up with the idea of some population control, if you will. They contact the Hebrew midwives and they say that they basically instruct them to, if there is a male born among the Hebrews, that they were to kill them during childbirth. If there was a female, they let them live. Now, the midwives, fearing the Lord, they didn't obey this. And then they tell the Pharaoh, that um, 
well, we, we would do this, we would follow your command, but the Hebrew women are, uh, they're very vigorous and they have children too quickly before the midwife can, can get there. Um, I don't know if we, we don't really know if that was necessarily a lie or true, but what it is is it basically shows that the midwives feared the Lord and that they protected the Hebrew children even through decree from the king of what they were to do. Then Pharaoh comes up with this other thing. At the very end of chapter 1 of Exodus, it says this, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born of you shall cast, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Very interesting here. You might not have noticed this before. He commanded all of his people, not just the Hebrews, all of his people. This was a decree from this Pharaoh showing truly how evil this Pharaoh was that he commanded all of his people, Egyptians, Hebrews, to throw all the boys into the river. What we believe here is this, is that, and this is what I was trying to say before, was that there was a prophecy that would come out that when, when the Hebrew um, when the children of Israel were raised up as a great people, there was some sort of prophecy that was spoken. Maybe it was another dream that was interpreted that there was going to be someone that was going to rise up that was going to deliver the Hebrew people. Now, we, again, this is not necessarily of the biblical account, but there's stories like this that we follow. And this is, and it kind of explains why this decree would have been made. And it's interesting here that he commands all of his people. It's possible that there could have been an Egyptian to, that fulfilled this prophecy. That an Egyptian rose up and delivered the Hebrew people. It could be possible that there was a son of Israel that has, was risen up and he delivers the people. We didn't know that. We didn't, you don't know. It's almost like this prophecy of a savior that would deliver the sons of Israel. It's also interesting that in our previous story we have Joseph who was the savior of the world. He was a Hebrew but he was disguised as an Egyptian. Very interesting here that you can kind of see how this prophecy might have been fulfilled, that it could be, we don't know if it's a Hebrew, we don't know if it's Egyptian, we don't know if it's a Hebrew looking like an Egyptian. It's some other deeper sort of thing where then the king of Egypt, the man of the world, the leader of the world who is against God, this is the one that doesn't remember what Joseph did. Remember the previous Pharaoh, he saw the Spirit of God inside in Joseph. He was a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This Pharaoh was not. And so he did not believe that. And so he is against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's going against whatever this prophecy of some sort of salvation would be. Again, another pattern parallel pointing to the Messiah that we believe is the Savior of the world. And that to the Jewish people, he looks like he's of the world. He looks like he's of the rest of the nations. That we have so many Christian nations here in the world today. But what it is, and somebody might be against that plan of God, that through the deliverance and salvation of the entire world... We want to believe whatever that is, whatever means of salvation that God would provide that to be, whether it be a Hebrew, whether it be a Hebrew that looks like he's of the nations. We want to believe in the prophecy of the God and his, the way that he brings his salvation to the world. Pharaoh was against that, of course. But now we know we are introduced now to the man of Moses here in chapter 2. And we know Moses is the man, is the fulfillment of this unspoken, mysterious prophecy that we believe uh, took place in Egypt. 
where it says this, And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived, bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the, re- in the reeds by the river's bank. And the sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. This is now the story that we've all kind of seen the images or the pictures or we've seen the movies of that we have this woman by the name of Yocheved, which was a daughter of Levi, and she bears a son that is Moses, and then she hides him to protect him. Now, one of the commentaries say this. The reason she was able to hide him for three months, the rabbis say this, they have the story that he was actually born premature. So when it was that any time a woman got pregnant, any, the authorities that are following the decrees of the king would know there's a woman that's pregnant, so we're going to go check on that woman in nine months, and we're going to then go see if it's a boy, then we're going to make sure she follows the law and throws him into the river, and if it's a girl, then we'll let them live. Well, what it is, she says she was able to hide him for three months. That What we believe is that Moses was born prematurely, and that's why she was able to hide him for three months, because they didn't come looking for her and looking for a new son. So kind of an interesting thing. Also, we believe that um, uh, Jacob, or no, Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, we also believe that he was premature based on the when he was born as well. So there's kind of this interesting pattern here of the patriarchs and great men of God and following the same pattern. So we see some of these same patterns through the stories of these men. He, they put him in an ark. Now this is the Hebrew word here for ark is teba. And this is the same ark that is described as Noah's ark. This is in contrast to the ark that is like say the ark of the covenant. That's a different Hebrew word called aron. And also that Hebrew word is also translated as coffin in the very last verse of the book of Genesis. It's very interesting here. We almost have this different contrast of arcs, if you will. This one Hebrew word, Taba for ark, represents an ark that preserves life. This is where Moses was laid so that he could be protected and not killed. It's also what Noah and his family took to be preserved from the great worldwide flood. This other ark, Aron, represents an ark that is more associated with judgment or death. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, there's a great deal of uh, instruction that will come later in the book of Exodus about the Ark of the Covenant, that you cannot touch that or lest you will die. And it's called the judgment seat of God. And then so there's kind of this contrasting uh, arcs, if you will, that there's sometimes arcs that preserve life, and then there's an ark that is associated with judgment or death, if you will. And we'll get into that when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant here in a couple of portions later in the book of Exodus. Very interesting here. Now, what happens, we all know the story. The daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe in the river and she finds the child. They find, she finds Moses. They find this ark. She opens up this basket, if you will, and there is a child. She immediately knows this is a Hebrew child. Now, we don't know how exactly why. Maybe it was a certain baby blanket that he had or a look that they were able to distinguish uh, children of Israel from the Egyptians. But she was able to determine this was a Hebrew child. She takes this child as her own. Now, if you remember Moses' sister, Miriam, was looking at the edge of the water. She sees Pharaoh's daughter, see, and she comes immediately up to the daughter of Pharaoh and says, "Um, Hi, I see you have that child. Shall I fetch one of the Hebrew midwives for your, or the... um, 
nurses to come and look after the, the child. And the daughter of Pharaoh says, yes, that would be great. She goes and gets her mother, Yocheved, and is able to come. And Yocheved is able to nurse Moses, even though he has now become in the possession of the daughter of Pharaoh. Yocheved, his mother, is still able to be the one who nurses him to health. Very interesting also, if you knew this decree, this law, that all the male children were to be thrown into the river, and they even knew that he was a Hebrew child, why did they let Moses live? Well, I've said this before, and I don't have time to really go into it too much, but uh, my good friend Rico has a great teaching on this that talks about how in Egypt they believed in a whole lot of gods. They believed the river Nile was a god. There was a water god, if you will. And that if somebody was ever, a child, was thrown into the river, but then he was spared, they would believe that the water god, the god of the Nile, had spared the child. They would have believed in that. They would have thought that was significant. And they would have then thought that it was the will of the gods for this child to live. We believe that that's exactly the case of what happened here. It appeared he was on the water floating there in a basket and that the water god had spared this child that the god had spoken, if you will. And so that is one of the things, even though we know he was a Hebrew, he was allowed to live, he was allowed to live and he even, we believe, he grew up in the house of Pharaoh as the child of the daughter of Pharaoh. And then many other stories and um, many movies have taken uh, creative license, if you will, about whether it be the Prince of Egypt or Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. There's very, a lot of stories about how what Moses would have been like growing up in the house of Pharaoh and as a, you know, whether he knew he was Hebrew. As far as we can tell from the biblical account, Moses knew he was Hebrew and everybody else in the house knew he was Hebrew. Did not, there wasn't this sort of mystery to his uh, birth, if you will, as some of the uh, movies like to kind of tell that story that's part of the it's part of the creative license of Hollywood that likes to you know make it more interesting sometimes fiction is a little bit more interesting than the fact at, at times we then have the story here at the end of chapter 2 talking about as Moses grew into a man and he went about to uh, look about the Hebrew people and he sees an Egyptian hurting a Hebrew man, one of his brethren. It says that in the scripture. Moses, as we can tell, knew exactly what he was doing, knowing he was Hebrew and knew that this was one of his brethren. He looks to the right, looks to the left. He kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand, knowing that he is doing something that to protect his brethren, as far as we can tell from the biblical account. He goes out the next day, he sees two Hebrew men fighting, and then what it says is, he says, why are you striking your companion? And he says, well, who made you prince or judge over us? Do you intend to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? They knew what happened. They, the matter was known. He had killed an Egyptian. Moses, fearing this, he flees from the land of Egypt and goes to the land of Midian. Now, we don't know, there's very little account given here as to whether Pharaoh found out, the, found out that he had killed a man, how much the matter had been made known. We actually don't have that story. However, we do, but we do have the story of Moses, and he goes on this journey, and we know the Lord is guiding Moses' path here. Because he's, Moses is going to be this man that God is going to raise up, and he's going to be the leader of the children of Israel. It's also interesting if we look at how old was Moses at this time. Some rabbis and other legends believe that he was 18 years old when he killed a man. However, we have the account of Stephen in the book of Acts that talks about how Moses was 40 years old when this took place. Very interesting if you look at that. We know Moses lived to 120 years. 
So we have these interesting, significant breaks in Moses' life every 40 years if we look at his life as a whole. The first 40 years would have been as in the house of the king, in the house of Pharaoh, as a prince of Egypt. The second 40 years would be him journeying in the land of Midian as a shepherd. And the last 40 years begins with the story of the burning bush. God calls him, tells him to go to Egypt and to bring the children of Israel out. And for the last 40 years of his life, they are, he is journeying in the wilderness, in the exodus from Egypt. Three very distinct sections of Moses' life. This pattern, I believe this pattern fulfills the same thing where we have the different um, persons of God, if you will, how he manifests himself as father, as king, as Moses was in the house of the king. Then Yeshua, the son, the good shepherd. Moses was a shepherd for the middle 40 years of his life. And then as the great gatherer or the one who leads the children of Israel to the promised land is more of a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit that goes and stirs in the hearts of all the people of brethren to turn toward God. So we have this interesting pattern in the life of Moses that can also kind of represent the character of God as well. Moses becomes a shepherd in the house of Reuel or Jethro, a sheik of Midian. He goes to a well and that's where he finds his wife. Interesting how uh, so many men in the Bible seem to find their wife at wells, if you will. That it's uh, Jacob meets Rachel at a well and Eliezer finds Rebekah at a well and brings, uh, brings her to Isaac. So this very much has in, having to do with wells. So for all the young men out there, go to the wells and see if that's where the Lord might fulfill you and find a wife for you. Chapter 3 of Exodus now goes into Moses at the burning bush. He goes, he's um, uh, taking care of the flock of his father-in-law. And then God reveals himself to God in a burning bush. And this is where God speaks to Moses. And for the majority of chapter 3, we have God speaking to Moses. And we get to hear God speak almost for the very first time with a with a great oration here. It's very long. It's very um, in depth, and it's very powerful. When we read these words of what God says to Moses, He calls him. He goes, Moses, Moses, and He calls him, and He tells him to take off his sandals because he stands on holy ground. There's a great number of teachings as to that this mountain of God that it is a holy place, and there's all different kinds of ways. And in the future, there'll be other holy places of God. Uh, there'll be described in there so there's other deeper studies that can go be gone into that Um, we have God talking to Moses and talking about how I truly have heard the oppression of my people the sons of Israel in the land of Egypt the taskmasters that have put them into slavery and he's heard that he's heard that cry from Egypt and that he's calling Moses to indeed be the one who will go and bring them out of Egypt. Moses, being a man who's like, are you sure, God? Are you sure you're choosing me? He, him being, you know, he killed a man, he's grown up as, a, as an Egyptian, you know, it's like, why is God choosing this guy necessarily? Well, we believe God obviously had his hand on the life of uh, Moses and all through these things. Moses, probably unaware, God was guiding his, step in, his steps in his path all throughout his life. You've got to remember, Moses is 80 years old now. He's at the end, toward the end of his life. You're going to use me now? 
well, this is the way God works. If you remember, you know, Abraham didn't have the promised son until he was a hundred years old. And so sometimes these men of God have to wait and learn the virtue of patience before God will truly use them to be a powerful man of God and to truly change the course of history, if you will. Moses is the man. He's the one he's being called here. And so he immediately starts talking with God and he's like, okay, if I'm going to go, you know, there, I'm going to go tell the, the children of Israel that I'm here. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to go. You, you know what they're going to say to me? They're going to be like, well, what's his name? Like, who is this God? Are you sure that this is, that God really talked to you? Burning bush? I've never heard of that one before. You know, he just kind of called to Abraham. What's this burning bush thing? God speaks to Moses, and this is where we learn this name. This is where God speaks his name. And let me read here now at verse 14 of chapter 3 of Exodus. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord, in my uh, Bible it says, Lord Adonai, this is the yod heh vav heh name of God that appears in our scripture. The Lord God of your fathers, the God God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. He goes on then to go and gather the telling Moses, gather the children, the elders of Israel and say these things to them. Here we learn the name of God. Now interesting, he starts off this. Did you catch this? I, I've read this passage so many times, but I haven't necessarily caught this every single time. He says, I am who I am, so go say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then it says, moreover, say this to the children of Israel. He's giving two things for Moses to say to the children of Israel. First, he says, I am. Now, in the Hebrew... What he says when he says, I am who I am, um, that actually in the Hebrew is, Ehiyeh asher Ehiyeh. And it's this interesting word that is an Aleph Hey Yod Hey, that is this I am, which actually more literally in the Hebrew means I will be. It's more a future tense word talking about God and his power as he's going to be in the future tense. This is actually the first name God gives to Moses to say. This Aleph Hey, Yod, hey. You know, we know about the Yod, uh, Yod, hey, Vav, hey. We say that all the time. That's the name of God. That's the memorial name of God. Do we actually look at this other name of God that God gives Moses to share? Do we really look at that with as much detail as well? Aleph, hey, Yod, hey. This being the first name that God gives to Moses. If it's interesting when you look at the uh, meaning of the Hebrew letters of that name, what it is is the He represents like what is revealed or the revelation, if you will. So the main thing to do is look at that Aleph and the Yod. What Aleph means is strength and a Yod means hand. The strength of the hand. This is what God has originally told Moses to tell him. That God is a strong hand. He's powerful. This is what, and so this name that, this initial name that Moses receives is a name of great power. And how he's going to, he's going to deliver the children of Israel with a strong hand. That's what he's going to do. This is how he first introduced himself. Then he says, moreover, then tell them this. And then that's when we get the yod heh vav heh name, the memorial name of God. But what's more interesting about that is if we look at yod heh vav heh, that means the revelation of the nailed hand. 
the vav represents a nail or a peg, and the yod, like I said before, represents a hand. And so the revelation of the nailed hand is the deeper meaning of yod he vav he. Now, for us that believe in Yeshua, that rings all kinds of bells with us, and we, and I love looking at the deeper meaning of that, that it's like this name is more representative of God, a memorial name. A, a memorial is used to remember Someone that has passed or something that has taken place. And what this yod heh vav name, when he truly reveals this name to the world, this will be a name of humility. This will be the name, this, is, this tetragrammaton, this four-letter Hebrew name, we believe, is what appeared above the cross, above Yeshua, when he was crucified. That the yod heh vav heh appeared there. And it wasn't until that time that truly that the meaning of that name was truly revealed to the world. And so this memorial name of God was revealed then when this initial name of God was a God of power, of a strong hand. It's almost in the way that God represents himself when we talk about the lion and the lamb, if you will. However, here it's a little bit switched. We talk about the lamb of God, that Yeshua came first as a lamb, and then he will now come as the lion of Judah, as a lion with great power. When we look at the biblical story, we see God very powerful in ancient times delivering the uh, sons of Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand. In fact, um, I'm running short on time, but I do want to point this out because this, this is interesting. If you read our portion to its entirety, it ends at the beginning of chapter 6 of Exodus. And what it is is after Moses returns back to Egypt, we do know the story that uh, he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't believe in God, doesn't hear the name, but then he goes back and then the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, You will now see what I will do to Pharaoh. I'm reading Exodus chapter 6. And it says, For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. We see that phrase, strong hand, twice, almost in the same way that when God first introduced himself, he says, With a strong hand, I will with a strong hand. He says it twice. That that is how God reveals himself initially to the Egyptians, to the children of Israel, when he delivers them out of Egypt. Very fascinating when we look at that, that that is actually truly the first name that God reveals to Moses. As I said at the beginning of our portion, it's very interesting how we look at the nature and the character of God. So many people in our Messianic movement today want to get caught up in the name. What's the name of God? How to say it? All of those different things. But what is more important is that we understand what our relationship with that God is. Because the name is what we are initially introduced to. But then what you have to do is you have to then form a relationship with that God to know truly what his character is. Now, his character is fascinating as you read through the scripture. He's powerful. But he's also compassionate. He also is he's patient. He's long-suffering. We learn the attributes of God later in the book of Exodus as well. Where this entire book is all surrounded at how we learn and meet the character of God. It's not just about an Exodus leaving Egypt. It's not just about getting to know the name of this God. And he's all-powerful and he does all these things and that's all well and good. No. It's about introducing God to you. To the world, to anyone who would have to, who would look, wants to form a relationship with God, he introduces himself.
The goal of Moses going down to Egypt, going back to Egypt and delivering the children of Israel out, the whole goal was not to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. There's a lot easier ways to do that. They could just walk out, powerful, kill all the Egyptians, walk out, blind them all, walk out, all of those different things. That was not the goal. The goal was to introduce the world and so that Pharaoh might know the Lord. And that's what we are to do and to learn as we go through the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way through until the completion of the tabernacle at the end of the book, where God then dwells with the children of Israel. It's almost like a long love story where we meet God, we learn His name, we form in covenant with Him, we then make a mistake, but God stays with us, with the children of Israel, and then dwells with them at the end of the book. It's like in a beautiful love story of the relationship between man and God. And that's really how we should look at the book of Exodus as we go through our story this year. Many more things I could say and talk about Moses. So many more things that we can learn about Moses. Um, how, you know, he doesn't... He, tells God that he's not very eloquent of speech, that he's not a man of words, as it would literally say in the Hebrew. But God then makes Moses in the future, will make Moses to be a great man of words, so much he's going to write a book called Devarim, called Words. That God sometimes can use, and this is what we can kind of take with us and be encouraged, that even when we feel like we're unworthy of that relationship with God, That we're unworthy to be called of God to do great things that God has asked us to do. That God, through Moses, through a man that committed murder, through a man that was not eloquent of speech, God still chose him to use him for his glory. To reveal himself to God, to, or to the world, to the children of Israel. And so that is one thing that I wish that we would be encouraged as well to, that we can Uh, follow God, we can have that relationship with God, we're deserving of that relationship with God, no matter what mistakes we've made in the past, or no matter how we might think of ourselves or what we're incapable of doing, when God chooses to use us, we are capable of all things. Amen? We're also reminded as well that it's not about following the man that we see. It's not about following a leader because he's good at speaking. I never want anybody to listen to a Torah teaching that I say because I'm good at speaking. In fact, I'm not very good. I stumble over my words all the time. My father would say the same thing as well. Don't listen to a teacher or a leader because they're, they're charismatic in their speech and they're sensational in all of their words. What you should try to learn and follow is the character of that person. Why God chose that person and not be fooled by the outer appearance, the outer shell, or because they have some fanciful name that you know causes you to stand up and follow them because, oh, don't you know that person has this name and it's great and powerful, but it's not about the name. Because what's in a name? A rose is... Smells wonderful, whether it was called a rose or any other name, but the character of the rose is that it smells amazing. So what we should always focus on is what the character of an individual is, the character of a leader that we should follow, and the character of a God that is worth worshiping and that we desire to be in covenant with. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our Torah portion. We thank you, Lord, for your instruction. We thank you, Lord, for introducing yourself to us. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your name, sharing your character with us, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would learn as a people 
to not follow after all of the idle things of the world, all of the outward appearances, all of the outward shells that we see, that we not follow after anything because of what it's called or what it looks like or how well it speaks, Lord. That you would cause us, Lord, to have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to learn the very character of anything that we would go to follow, Lord. Whether it be somebody, a good friend, or a leader, or a teacher, Lord, that is compelling us to, to, is teaching us something, Lord. Father, I pray that you would speak through them and that you would give us the spiritual eyes and ears to hear the character of the person and the character of God of you speaking through them. And not because they look good or not because they sound good, Father. And Lord, I pray that we would follow you. That we would follow your words and your instructions. Not because of some powerful name, Lord. And not because of some uh, uh, thing that might be compel us to just initially look that direction, Lord. But may we get to know your character, Lord. Deep down, what is your heart and your heart's desire to dwell with us, to be in covenant with us. Lord, your name is powerful. Your name, there is healing and power in your name, Father. But so many of us, Lord, get caught up in the aspect of your name, Lord, and miss the true character of who you are to us and to them. So, Father, I pray that we stay focused on those things, that we continue to follow after you and your heart as we follow along with the story of the children of Israel and their journey from Egypt to the promised land, Lord. May we be encouraged and strengthened in this Torah cycle, and may we, as we go through the book of Exodus, may we learn your character, not just your name, Lord, but the true character of who you are, and the love that you have for us, and the compassion and the long-suffering and all of your attributes, Lord, that are great and mighty. So we love you, we bless you, and we thank you on the Sabbath day for your teaching and your instruction. We thank you, Lord. We give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise. It's in your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natalanu Torah temet, v'chayalam nata betocheinu, Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-Torah, amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Shalom. I'm Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries, and once again this week I am sitting in for Monty Judah and will be sharing with you thoughts and insights regarding the Brit Hadashah or the New Testament portion for this week's Torah portion. And before I start, I would uh, like to uh, remind you, given that Monty's wife Lynn passed away on December the 21st to keep him and the family in your thoughts and your prayers and that will be much appreciated. So in looking at the New Testament portion for our Torah portion, it is taken from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. And so this really gives an overview of our Torah portion for this week. So, because it does, I want to read to you Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. 
And I'm going to go to verse 38, which is a little bit more than what our stated portion is. But I think that's going to give us a good overview for sharing this week. So beginning in verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had swore to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. The same doubt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born and was exceedingly fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again saying sirs you are brethren why do you wrong one to another but he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away saying who made you a ruler and judge over us will you kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons and when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord and a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight as he drew near to behold it. The voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have seen the afflictions of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and am come down to deliver them, and now come, I send thee into Egypt. Thus Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that, he showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me him shall you hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. And so that's an overview of what we're going to be teaching and sharing on this week. So I'd like to go back and give some thoughts about different elements of that overview and of the Torah portion. And so to begin with, we want to look at Exodus in chapter 1 and verse 5 where it says, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And so we're told here that the number of the children of Israel that went to Egypt was 70. But if you do a count, 
there is only 69. So the question arises, who was the 70th? And one of the opinions is it was God himself who went down to Egypt with the children of Israel. And he came out of Egypt with the children of Israel in the form of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night when he led them in the wilderness. And so we're told that there were 70 that went to Egypt. And now if we look at Deuteronomy in chapter 32 and in verse 8 it reads, When the Most High divided the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. And so the question is, what's the number of the children of Israel? Because the nations of the world are linked and associated with the number of the children of Israel. And this number is associated with Jacob's family who went to Egypt. And so the number 70. So it's seen that there are 70 nations in the world. And if you do account following the flood in Genesis in chapter 10, when uh, following the flood the people began to spread out into the nations, we See then in Genesis chapter 10 verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And so the uh, 70 of the children of Israel who went to Egypt. They are associated and linked with here the number of the nations is outlined after the flood in Genesis chapter 10. That is 70. And given that 70 is associated with the nations of the world, we have during Sukkot that the number of offerings as represented uh, through the bulls that are sacrificed during the seven days of Sukkot, there's a total of 70 bulls that are sacrificed. And these bulls represent the nations of the world. One bull for each nation of the world. And so we can see this outlined in Numbers in chapter 29. And it says in verse 12, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no servile work, and you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. And so this is describing the Feast of Tabernacles. And then it goes on to say in the first day that you are to offer... 13 young bullocks, and that is in Numbers chapter 29 in verse 13. So we have 13 bulls that are offered the first day. And then on the second day in verse 17, 12 bullocks. And then in the third day in verse 20, 11 bullocks. And then the fourth day in verse 23, 10 bullocks. 
And then the fifth day, in verse 26, nine bullocks. And then in verse 29, the sixth day, eight bullocks. And finally, on the seventh day, in verse 32, seven bullocks. So if you add 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. And uh, then on the last day, seven, you'll get 70. And so the number of the children of Israel who go to Egypt is associated with the nations of the world and following the flood in Genesis chapter 10 it was seen that initially there were 70 nations that were established in the earth so the next thing that we're going to look at from uh, this week's uh, Torah portion as outlined in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 is in Exodus in chapter 1 and verse 8 it says now there arose a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and so Pharaoh in Hebrew was Paro and and if you look at the name of Pharaoh in Hebrew Paro it's Pe-ra-o Pe-ra-o Pe in Hebrew, it was mouth, and Ra is evil. So contained within Pharaoh's name in Hebrew is evil mouth. And if we look at Revelation chapter 13, what God is showing us is Pharaoh is going to be a prophetic foreshadowing of the false Messiah, and he's going to be a prophetic foreshadowing of Hasatan or Satan himself. So even as Pharaoh kept the children of Israel in bondage, we have Hasatan who puts people into bondage and causes them to serve him with rigor. He is a hard task master. And now we're going to go to Revelation in chapter 13. And describing in verse 1, the beast that rises up out of the sea, we see what he does in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. This beast is the false Messiah. In Revelation 13, verse 5, it says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. You see, he has an evil mouth. And power was given unto him to continue for 42 months. So Pharaoh is a type of the false Messiah. And now if we look at a prophecy about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in Ezekiel in chapter 29, Ezekiel in chapter 29, and we're going to begin reading in... Verse 2, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the rivers, who has said, My river is my own, and I've made it for myself. So Pharaoh is called here a dragon. The Hebrew word is tanin which lies in the midst of the rivers. And so, how's Lucifer or Hasatan described in Revelation in chapter 12? 
and verse 9. It says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So Pharaoh is a type of the false messiah. Pharaoh is a type of Hasatan himself. Now back to Ezekiel in chapter 29 and given a prophecy about Pharaoh. He says, my river is my own. This is a way of saying and describing pride. And so um, then if we go to uh, the book of Job. And Job in chapter 41 it says in verse 1, Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord which you let down? And then it says in verse 3, Will he make supplications with you? Will he speak soft words unto you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? And then in verse 34 it says, He beholds all high things. He is king over all the children of pride. So we have Leviathan is described as being king over all the children of pride. Leviathan is a sea monster. He's a tanin. And so Pharaoh is a tanin. And Leviathan is a tanin. And Hasatan is a tanin. So now we're going to go to Psalm in chapter 74. And... Verses 12 through 14. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You did divide the sea by your strength. You did break the heads of the dragons in the waters. You did break the heads of Leviathan in pieces. And you gave him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So this is describing what happened at the Red Sea. Where we have Pharaoh's army that drowned in the Red Sea. And so in describing this event where ultimately Pharaoh and his army was defeated at the Red Sea, Psalm 74 is describing and linking and associated with Leviathan. So Pharaoh is being linked with Leviathan and Leviathan has many heads. And in Revelation chapter 13 verse 1, a beast is coming out of the sea having many heads. And so we see the association that Pharaoh is linked with Leviathan and Pharaoh is linked with Hasatan. We have that Pharaoh um, is a person of pride and Leviathan's king over all the children of pride. Of course, the one who is ultimately the most prideful is Lucifer, Hasatan himself. And so... This is how we can see this association. Now, going back to Ezekiel in chapter 29 and prophesying about Pharaoh, it says in verses 4 and 5, I will put hooks in your jaws and I will cause the fish of your rivers to stick unto your scales and I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish of your rivers shall stick unto your scales. And I will leave the throne into the wilderness. You and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall upon the open fields. You shall not be brought together nor gathered. And I have given you for meat to the beasts of the field and to the fowls 
of the heaven. And so we see here the description of the defeat of Pharaoh, which is prophesying of the defeat of the beast and of the defeat of Hasatan. And so that which is describing here regarding Pharaoh has similar phraseology to the defeat of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel in chapter 38. So let me read you that and you can see that link and that association. Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 20. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven, this is describing the defeat of the Gog Magog armies. Let's go back to verse 18 so you can see the context easier and it will come to pass at that time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel says the Lord God that my fury shall come up in my face for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken surely in that day there will be a great shaking in the land of Israel so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground and I will cause for a sword against him throughout all my mountains says the Lord God every man's sword shall be against his brother and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstone fire and brimstone and so then we have in the book of Revelation uh, regarding ultimately the beast and Hasatan it says in Revelation in chapter 19 Revelation in chapter 19 uh, beginning in verse 17 and I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and all of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men both free and bond both small and great and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image these both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh and so uh, we have ultimately as well that Hasatan, his ultimate judgment is to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so in these things, giving you uh, several examples here how Pharaoh is a type of the false messiah and he's a type of Hasatan himself. Pharaoh put the children of Israel in bondage and ultimately the way that Hasatan brings us into bondage is when and through the enticement of sin. It's sin that brings us into bondage and then when we sin and 
if we don't repent, then sin produces death and sin is a cruel taskmaster to us when we realize the consequences that results from our sinning. And so the circumstances here for the children of Israel is outlined with the phrase in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 that there arose a new king, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And so this phraseology means things are going to be trying and difficult, but ultimately the outcome is going to be deliverance. And this thought can be likened to Genesis in chapter 31. And Jacob had been serving Laban ultimately for 20 years. And it says in Genesis chapter 31 verse 2, And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. See, that's what happened in Egypt. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Egypt. This Pharaoh did not have respect unto the children of Israel on behalf of Joseph. Just how that uh, Laban and his sons did not have respect for Jacob like things were in the beginning. And so the instruction then to Jacob in Genesis chapter 31 verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. So in other words, the God of Israel is going to bring about a deliverance of Jacob. So even though we have a Pharaoh that arose that knew not Joseph, we see in the chapter that deliverance is coming and that deliverance ultimately came initially through the birth of Moses, but it wasn't until he grew to full adulthood that the solution that God was preparing for the children of Israel to deliver them, it took time. It took a process from the birth of the deliverer till the deliverance came. And so then... Continue on in Exodus in chapter 1, we are told the following, beginning in verse 13. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but save the men children alive. And so as a result, it says in verse 18, that the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and they are delivered ere the midwives come in with them. Alright, so this is also a prophetic foreshadowing. That when the deliverer of God was to be born, there was an effort made and a decree given that through the decree 
that there would be the death of the one that the God of Israel was raising up to deliver. And so this is going to parallel and prophetic of the events surrounding the birth of Yeshua. So if we look at Matthew chapters 2 through 5, we're going to see a very interesting way in which the book of Matthew is laid out. And there's this principle that what happens to Israel happens to the Messiah. And what happens to the Messiah happens to Israel. That what we're being shown in the Torah portions, while the things that are stated were literally and historically happened, they were hints to the Messiah and the understanding of the Messiah. So in Matthew chapter 2, we have when Yeshua is born, we have that Herod made a decree that the young children would die. And so this is similar to what Pharaoh did in Exodus in chapter 1. But then we have intervention, just like the midwives intervened and didn't do what they were instructed to do. And the angel of the Lord gives instruction to Mary and Joseph to go to Egypt and to remain there until the death of Herod. And then once Herod dies, we're told in Matthew and chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I've called my son. So that is a quote. Out of Egypt I've called my son. That is a quote from Hosea in chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, if you're reading through the book of Hosea, reading chapter 10, continuing on into chapter 11, verse 1, it's not going to indicate that the book of Hosea is speaking about the Messiah. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. And so it's literally speaking about the children of Israel being redeemed out of Egypt based upon the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis in chapter 15 that Abraham's seed was to go to Egypt, but afterward they would be brought out with great substance. And so how is it that in Matthew in chapter 2 verse 15, that which is happening to Yeshua, there's a reference to, in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, what happened to the children of Israel. How is Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15, how is that being applied to the Messiah? Well, it's because what happens to Israel happens to the Messiah. What happens to the Messiah happens to Israel. And that which is happening to the deliverer of Israel, Moses, is going to be a prophecy of what's going to happen to the deliverer of Israel. That is the Messiah of Israel. He's going to deliver his people in the world from their sins. So 
This is what happens in Matthew chapter 2 that Yeshua is born and then there's a decree by Herod that the young children would be killed but that which he was attempting to do did not work. There was intervention and so Mary and Joseph they flee to Egypt until Herod dies and then Mary and Joseph come out of Egypt with Yeshua. They return back to the land just as the children of Israel went to Egypt and then they were brought out of Egypt. And then the children of Israel, they crossed the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt and they were delivered from Pharaoh's hand. But the Messiah is going to take his people to the promised land. And when the children of Israel entered into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan River. And it was Joshua, and his long name is Yehoshua, which is how we say, we use, usually use the shortened Yeshua, but his longer name is Yehoshua, Joshua. And so Joshua foreshadows Yeshua, who's going to take his people into the promised land. When he takes them in, he takes them in the land by crossing the Jordan. So that's why we have in Matthew chapter 3 that we see Yeshua being immersed in the Jordan. And so then once the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, they ultimately spent 40 years in the wilderness. So we see in Matthew chapter 4 that Yeshua is being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, paralleling the children of Israel. And then when the children of Israel, when and after they crossed the Red Sea, they were given instruction at Mount Sinai. And so we have in Matthew chapter 5 that Yeshua is giving a sermon on the mount. And so the children of Israel were given the Torah on Mount Sinai. And so now Yeshua is going to be teaching, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, the heart, the deeper meaning of the Torah instructions because Yeshua is going to make a reference to those things that was said at Mount Sinai, but he's going to give the deeper, the heart meaning of them in his teaching and his explanation beginning in Matthew in chapter 5. So, now, the next thing that we're going to look at in Exodus in chapter 2, in verses 23 and 24, it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He remembered the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis in chapter 15. Where it says in verse 13, he said to Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land not theirs, and will serve them, and will afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they will serve will I judge. And afterward they will come out with great substance. So this was a promise that was made to Abraham regarding his seed. So now we see in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, that God remembered he heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So oftentimes, uh, the way the Bible is looked at is the Bible is div divided into what they call dispensations. And they, they talk about we have the Abrahamic covenant 
But then we have the Mosaic Covenant, and they put a line between the two and a wall between the two, and they say, well, these are two separate things. These are two different covenants. But we see here that what is happening with the calling of Moses and ultimately in bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and then the commandments that are be, going to be given to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai is directly linked and tied to the promise that was made with Abraham. So he remembered his covenant and now we see these events happening. And so these events is a, is a further detail regarding the outcome of the Abrahamic covenant. And so what happened at Mount Sinai was done on behalf of and in fulfillment of the covenant that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we even see Yeshua and his ministry is still the playing out of the fulfillment of the covenant that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because we see in Romans in chapter 15 and verse 8, Now I say that Yeshua HaMashiach was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm, to fulfill, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And then regarding the birth of John the Baptist or Yochanan the Immerser, and uh, then in looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, we have in Luke chapter 1 verse 67 that John's father, Zecharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those that hate us. Look at this, verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And so that Abrahamic covenant is in the process of being displayed and fulfilled with the calling of Moses and the Torah being given at Mount Sinai. And it's still in the process of being fulfilled with the birth of Yochanan the Immerser who's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah and with the coming of the Messiah himself and the ministry of the Messiah as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15 and verse 8. Next we're going to look at Exodus in chapter 3 and verse 1 where it says, And Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, And then verse 2, and it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And so this word in Hebrew that's translated as angel is malak. It means a messenger. And this is not what we normally think of the angelic class like Gabriel or Michael. But this is saying to us, in the Hebrew, it's the messenger of the Lord that appeared to him. And this is highlighted in Stephen's sermon in Acts in chapter 7, where he says in verse 30, When forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. And Then, 
in Acts chapter 7 verse 38, it says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. And so we have the messenger of Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord that's appearing to Moses at the burning bush. And then this messenger of Yahweh tells Moses to tell the children of Israel his name. And as it's translated in English, in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, I am that I am. Of course, Yeshua in his ministry will use the phrase, I am. The way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. He's making a reference back to what happened here in Exodus chapter 3. That he's the I am. And in the book of John he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so the messenger of the Lord is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The messenger of the Lord is the one that gave the Torah at Mount Sinai as Stephen mentioned in Acts in chapter 7. So now, in continuing uh, this thought about the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses at the burning bush, in Judges, in chapter 13, we have the account of Samson's birth. And in telling us the situation regarding Samson's birth, it says in Judges chapter 13 verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now you are barren and bearest not, but you will conceive and bear a son. So this is the same messenger of the Lord that appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And so in stating the encounter that happened with the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 13 verse 6 it says then the woman came and told her husband saying a man of God came unto me and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God very awesome and I asked him not whence he was neither told me his name and so here the one um, that appeared and the circumstances regarding Samson's birth, in describing him, it says, a man of God. And so when he appeared, he resembled and looked like a man. And then later on uh, in the accounts, it goes on to say, in Judges chapter 13, beginning in verse 19, so Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock under the Lord, and the angel did wondrously, and Manoah and his wife looked upon. For it came to pass, when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. So the messenger of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. But the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife, then Manoah know that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we've seen God. So in this account, the messenger of the Lord, he resembles a man. And so in describing the account of what happened, it says, A man. But then we see the supernatural element that he's in the flame of this altar. And then 
Manoah realizes, whoa, this was God. And so, here we see in the Hebrew Scriptures that the messenger of the Lord is both man and God. And it was the messenger of the Lord that appeared to Moses. And this messenger of the Lord said that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So who's the one that said he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yeshua. And it was the angel of the Lord. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that gave the Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai. And so, then if we go to Exodus in chapter 4, um, we see that uh, Moses is concerned about his job task that he's given. And so he's going to be given a couple signs. In Exodus chapter 4, the Lord said to him, What is your hand? And he said, A rod. Now, this rod is going to be a prophetic foreshadowing of the Messiah. And he said, cast it to the ground. Well, that's what happened to Yeshua when he came at his first coming. It's, it says in 2 Corinthians and chapter 5, 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 21. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. So at his first coming when Yeshua died on the tree, he was made sin for us. So in being made sin for us, the prophetic foreshadowing is when the children of Israel were to put a serpent on a pole and they looked at it, they would be healed. That was Yeshua being made sin for us. And so he cast it the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from before it. That's a prophecy that the, the religious leaders of the Jewish people fled from Yeshua. They didn't receive him as their king, as king of Israel. So it's prophesied here. And then the Lord said to Moses, put forth your hand and take it by the tail. When he put forth his hand, he caught it. And it became as a rod. So it started out as a rod. It was cast to the ground. It became a serpent. And then it became a rod again. So Yeshua, he's the rod. He came to the earth. And he came as a man. And he died on the tree. He was made sin for us. And... As a nation, the Jewish people did not receive Yeshua as the Messiah. They fled from him. And then after Yeshua's death and resurrection, he was raised to glory. And so he became a rod again, ruling and reigning. So then the second sign here is Moses is told to put his hand on the inside. And, his, and we see that leprosy appeared. Leprosy is a skin disease. And... Um, Sin is likened to being fleshly, a skin disease. So this is a picture of the children of Israel breaking the covenant. And then he said, put your hand in there again, and then there was a healing of it. So the leprosy is going to foreshadow the children of Israel sinning, breaking the covenant. As a consequence of sinning and breaking the covenant, they were scattered in the nations of the world. But in scattering the nations of the world, they were going to be delivered. They were going to be saved and they're going to be gathered back to the land. We're still waiting for the fullness of that redemption. That's called the Messianic redemption. So the children of Israel coming out of Egypt is a prophetic foreshadowing of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom being gathered from worldwide exile, worldwide captivity, and be, being united by the Messiah. And this is outlined in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 15 through 28. So I pray that you've been blessed from the Torah portion 
this week and the Brit Hadashah and how they link and go together and the many wonderful and marvelous things that the God of Israel is trying to teach and show us about his kingdom, about the Messiah through these things. Be blessed. Until next week, Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 a gift from God to put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in His hands so obey His commands and you will know peace Shalom